Good morning, it is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. A delight to have you with us on this Thursday morning. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. And... I am delighted to welcome back a, a terrific guest, and it is the legendary author who has uh, written a, a number of terrific books and, uh, and very thoughtful books over the years. I speak of uh, Galen White. Galen, great to chat with you again. Thanks, Ken. It's always been a pleasure to talk to be on your show. And uh, your latest book is about someone that most people, uh, certainly in this area, have probably never heard of. But uh, that that's not really unusual for a Galen White book because you you uncover some terrific stories. And uh, hey, I, I major in the obscure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this book is called "Coach of a Lifetime: The Story of Lewis Cook Jr." Uh, legendary high school football coach with a forward by another legendary coach, uh, Nick Saban. How, how did you get Nick to uh, write the forward, Galen? Well, Nick Saban, uh, the second, uh, when he came to LSU to coach, the second school he visited was Notre Dame High School. Wow. Because uh, Notre Dame had a six foot six, 300 pound uh, lineman who LSU had uh, signed. Uh, he had committed as a sophomore in high school. And so Nick Saban wanted to make sure that Cade Como, the player, still was coming to LSU. Uh, Coach Cook has been at uh, Notre Dame High School since 1997. Also, uh, Coach uh, Saban recruited Coach Cook's middle son, Jeff, who was an all-state quarterback. He played at LSU one year. He played both baseball and football, and then he decided to play baseball only, and he transferred over to University of uh, Louisiana Lafayette. So that's the primary connection. But uh, Saban also at one point offered uh, Coach Cook a job. He thought uh, Coach Cook was stepping down from coaching, and he offered him a position to be a liaison with high school coaches throughout the state of Louisiana. But Coach Cook had uh, no plans to uh, leave the sidelines. No, no plans to leave the sidelines, and and probably won't for a while. Why, why a book, uh, Galen, about a high school football coach? At the time, I didn't necessarily think this way, but I do now, and this is one reason. High school level is where the coaches develop the talent. If you look at the college and the professional level. What they do there is primarily manage talent. The real development is at the high school level. And Coach Cook is just outstanding. He's a specialist at developing players. And so that's why he prefers high school, because that's where the true development takes place. At the time the book started, which was two years ago, 2021, it was right after I had completed the book on uh, best, it was called Best Little Baseball Town in the World. It was a baseball book on the Crowley Millers in the Evangel League in the 1950s. I wanted someone to endorse that book who was well-known. <clears throat> the, best, well, the best known player in this area is Ron Guidry, Louisiana Lightning, he was yep. known as. Uh, Coach Cook played baseball with Ron Guidry 
at University of Southwestern Louisiana their freshman year. And so Coach Cook helped me uh, connect with Ron Guidry. And as a result of that, we got to talking. <clears throat> and I asked him, have you ever thought about doing a book? And he said, yes. In fact, someone had even started one on him at one point, but hadn't finished. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, we got to talk him. What do we want from this book? And we both felt that given the time, 2021, coming out of pandemic, the dearth of leadership in this country, I, I wanted a book <clears throat> that was inspiring and showed what leadership, true leadership was, because I think Coach Cook is a great leader. Yes, he's a high school coach, but he practices all the things you need to be a great leader. And Coach Cook wanted to inspire uh, young coaches to enter the profession. So we wanted an inspiring book, and we felt it would be timely if we could pull that off. And I think it is. Oh, you you uh, certainly have, and uh, it is a very inspiring book, no no doubt about that. Uh, his uh, early uh, coaching years were at uh, Crowley High School, and then uh, he agonized about a move uh, to move from uh, Crowley onto uh, Notre Dame High School. As one of his fellow coaches said, he could have gone anywhere in the country other than across town to Notre Dame, and then there wouldn't have been a problem. But um, because it was crossed down, it was controversial. But he did that <clears throat> because his boys, he wanted to coach his boys. He has three sons. Uh, one was already at Crowley High. The other two <clears throat> were going to be coming uh, along later on. And like I said, Jeff Cook, who went on to play at LSU, he joined his father at Notre Dame and became an All-State player, and they had their first title. Uh, at Notre Dame uh, for Coach Cook there at Notre Dame. He'd won a state title at Crowley High, a public school. So he was at, uh, when he went to Crowley High out of college, he took a $6,000 cut in pay. And he went because um, he knew eventually he wanted to coach his sons. And also, Crowley High was, uh, you might say, well, it doesn't get any worse than it was at that time. They had a 21 game losing streak. So he goes to a high school with a 21-game losing streak, takes a $6,000 cut in pay. Five years later, they win the state title. Altogether, they went to the state championship game three times with Coach Cook uh, at the helm. Uh, they won one of them. So at Notre Dame, he's been to the Superdome, which is where they play the state championship game. He's been there 10 times, and they've won four titles. So he just has this knack for uh, he can take one, one person told me he can take the worst program in the country and he can turn it around. Now, how does he do it? Well, at Crowley High, he'd walk the halls and he'd see some guy that, that was big and he asked him if he was playing football. And he wasn't. Well, come on out. Give it a shot. And the guy would say, well, he didn't like the previous coach. And that was the case uh, quite a bit there. He said, well, uh, you got a new coach. Uh, come out and give me a shot. And Players did that, and out of that came some outstanding players who went on to play at major colleges. So he just has this ability to uh, connect with people. He's a great communicator. The media here in Louisiana calls him the master, and he truly is. Yeah, no no doubt about that. And uh, there's an amazing statistic uh, uh, in the book. Uh, during the 2022-23 uh, uh, school year, uh, 117, 117 
or 70.5% of the 166 boys enrolled at Notre Dame High School were on the football team. That's that's a pretty big roster. They don't even they only have a guy to play the tuba in the band. Yeah. I mean <laughs> They don't even have a band. I mean the Notre Dame fight song, they got to you know play some recording. Um he uh Kids want to play for Coach Cook. Why? Because he puts kids first. He tells other coaches, forget about winning. Emphasize your kids and put them first. Don't put winning first. Put your kids first. And if you put your kids first, they're going to go to the wall for you. And then you're more likely to win. And Coach Cook goes to the wall for his kids. He is in his office. I mean, the man... Uh, he, he only sleeps in rain. That's his hometown. Uh, it, Crowley, is, his office is about 10 miles away. He spends most of his time at, at Notre Dame High School in the field house in his office. So kids see this. It's a small high school. They, they see him at all the events. He goes to all the baseball games. He goes to the girls' softball games, the volleyball games. You name it, he's there. They see him. They know he cares. In many cases, they coach. Uh, he's coached their brothers. He's coached their fathers. Mm. Uh, in some cases, a grandfather has slipped in there. Wow. So, you know, he, he, this is his 27th year at Notre Dame. And then the grandfathers would be probably over at Crowley High where he coached some of them. But the, if you're in the Acadia Parish or even near Acadia Parish, you want your son to play for Louis Cook. Because what he does is he not doesn't just take uh, sons of, Five foot six inch sons of crawfish farmers or rice farmers and make them uh, extraordinary athletes. He makes them extraordinary men. There's a chapter in the book called The Ultimate Goal is Heaven. He's had uh, three players go on to the priesthood. He's had several become uh, orthopedic surgeons. There's one that's a plastic surgeon. So uh, they all go on to accomplish careers, or most of them. That is that is really something. It's an amazing story. Uh, Galen White, the author, is with us. Coach of a Lifetime is the book, the story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach. And uh, Galen, we have to take a quick break, but uh, we will be uh, right back with more. So stand by. It is Kale and Company live on this Thursday on WKXLNHtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stand by for more. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Glad to have with us today Galen White. Uh, he has been on uh, shows of mine for uh, any number of years with his uh, five previous books to this one. And this one is uh, terrific. Coach of a Lifetime, story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach in Louisiana. And uh, over his career, Galen, uh, he has, uh, you know, encountered some uh, future NFL players like uh, Orlando Thomas and uh, and Jake Delhomme. Orlando Thomas, both of them are great stories. Orlando Thomas uh, played for him in high school. Uh, he was a 98-pound, 13-year-old when he first showed up to play football. His second year there, he told Coach Cook he wanted to play. He was going to play in the NFL, and Coach Cook asked him. Are you doing everything you can in order to do that? And he 
Orlando said, well, he thought he was. He says, you're not going out for track. You need to be out for track. You need to be faster. Well, that kind of started things along. Orlando, of course, went on to become an All-American at University of Southwestern Louisiana and an All-Pro for the Minnesota Vikings. Played seven years uh, for the Vikings. Um, unfortunately, Orlando died of Lou Gehrig's disease in 2014. He battled the disease for 10 years. Orlando uh, always wanted to do something special for Coach Cook. He had a father-son relationship. Coach Cook told him, save your money for retirement. I don't want you spending any money on me. So Orlando finally sent him this Heisman-like trophy. I call it a statuette in the book. And that is called Coach of a Lifetime. And that's where the title of the book comes from, is a statuette that Orlando Thomas gave him. And it reads, thanks for your support, love, honesty, and friendship. So that gives you an idea of here's this black player and he uh, considers Coach Cook uh, like a father to him and they have this great relationship. There's a chapter in the book called 42 and that's because Orlando Thomas wore 42 at the University of Southwestern Louisiana. He was the 42nd pick in the 1995 NFL draft. He wore 42 for the Minnesota Vikings. He died at the age of 42, mm. the same age that his father died. It's a powerful chapter, chapter yeah. 42. I mean, it's called 42, almost called it 42. Yeah. Uh, wow. But then Jake, <laughs> Jake Delholm is a, a, a different story, very fascinating. He was a, um, uh, a quarterback for another Catholic high school in the Lafayette area. He was not highly recruited. Um, in fact, um, the head coach at the uh, University of Southwestern Louisiana at the time, Nelson Stokely, who had been <clears throat> a quarterback at LSU. Um, uh, Nelson uh, asked Coach, uh, who else is recruiting him? And Coach Cook said, well, uh, not too many others. But that's good. That means we may get it. So Coach Cook recruited Jake DeHaul. And then uh, in, in uh, leading up to his freshman year, he saw Jake's potential, and he started giving him some reps in practice, even though the plan was to redshirt. First game of the season, the starting quarterback for USL throws three interceptions in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. His backups come in. The second stringer throws an interception. By the time halftime gets around, there's been five interceptions. And uh, Coach goes to his office, meets with uh, uh, Nelson Stokely, and and tells uh, Stokely that he wants to play Jake. Stokely wasn't happy about it. In fact, the chapter is called, There Goes His Red Shirt. But what happened was Jake DeHolm went on to lead uh, USL to eight victories that season, his freshman season. And then he set all sorts of records uh, over his four-year career at USL. And Jake and uh, Coach have a great relationship. And one of the things that happened again that season, and it's kind of a funny story. Uh, Jake, of course, had this great freshman year, but there was a practice where he wasn't doing all that well, and Coach Cook uh, tapped him on the shoulder, and uh, he uh, he tapped him on the shoulder, and uh, and, he, and he said um, very calmly, "If the university police knock on that door tonight." and want to arrest you for the murder, just put your hands out and let them cuff you because you're killing. (laughs) Uh, You know, Jake explains, uh, that was Louis Cook's way of dog cussing me. 
He has that magic, that charm, that way. You can feel it. It kind of oozes out of him. I never felt so bad for letting somebody down. And that's the thing about Coach Cook. You didn't want to let him down. Well, this sounds like a, an amazing guy. In fact, I was talking with a longtime uh, NFL executive, Michael Lombardi, the other day uh, on the show, and he was talking about the, the legendary Paul Brown, who uh, really never considered himself a coach but uh, more of a teacher, and this sounds exactly like uh, Coach Cook. He, uh, he, does, he has on occasion referred to, to not a job, but a calling. And, and, and in a sense, uh, coaching has become a calling for him. Um, <laughs> excuse me. His father wanted him to be an accountant. His father was close friends with a man named B.I. Moody. Uh, B.I. Moody, uh, his name is on the Business Administration School at University of Southwest, at University of Louisiana Lafayette. So, a uh, very successful man. Yeah. He knew that if Coach uh, if, if Coach Cook went to work for B.I. Moody, he would be a success. And so his father uh, uh, didn't want him coaching. But Coach felt this calling to go into coaching. And and that's how he's treated it. He, he, he's shaping the lives of young men. And the fact that he's turned out so many priests and surgeons and <coughs> and other other men who have, have uh, been very successful in life. That speaks to the fact that he um, made the right choice. I guess there's no no doubt about that. And uh, uh, other than uh, you know both of them having great success, what, what are some of the similarities between uh, Coach Cook and the man who did write the the foreword uh, for your book in Nick Saban? Well, uh, they both were quarterbacks in high school. Coach Cook is about five foot six. Uh, Nick Saban isn't much taller, if at all. Uh, both uh, there were some similarities between their fathers. They married uh, women who were one year behind them in the same high school. They were both majorettes. Their fathers both uh, uh, ran. Uh, Coach Cook's father ran a car business and also pumped gas. Coach Saban's father pumped gas. The biggest difference between the two is what Nick Saban makes at University of Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was, with Coach, I was with Coach Cook the day that uh, uh, Nick Saban got his last uh, humongous contract, and uh, it was it was it was for one of the early morning summer practices. And he walked into his office, turned on the computer, and he sees this news about Saban's contract, and he says to himself. And I'm the sucker that took a six thousand dollar cut and pay to go back to high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure he, he must have had some offers along the way to uh, to go to college programs. I would have to think he did. He had uh, eventually University of Southwestern Louisiana offered him uh, or wanted him to be the head coach there. Texas A and M wanted him to be an offensive coordinator. He had opportunities to go other places, <clears throat> and I think eventually, if he'd been open to the idea, there would have been a head coaching position uh, somewhere uh, in there, in addition to USL. But <coughs> excuse me, apologize for the coffee. Um, the uh, the reason is it's back to his his core philosophy. 
and that is faith, family, and football. Right. And he he knew his wife did not want to leave this area. He lives in Rain, Louisiana, has lived there the whole life, his whole life, and so is she. So she didn't want to leave. He, he in the coaching profession, can to move up. You usually have to move out. Coach was unwilling to do that. And the thing that he's really proudest of is that his three boys never had to change their house address. They always had the same house address. So I think it's that commitment to his family that uh, made him decide to stay put. The biggest decision he had to make was whether he had to turn east or west on Interstate 10. Where was he going to go, one way or the other? Uh, So that's the biggest choice, and he liked it that way. And also I think he's more comfortable at the high school level. Mm -hmm. He made a comment about Nick Saban. He said, Nick Saban, who, who, as you know, uh, coached the Miami Dolphins, he said, Nick Saban's more comfortable in college. I'm more comfortable in high school. There you go. And I understand, Galen, your son uh, played a role in in, uh, this book. He took the cover photo of uh, Coach Cook. Uh, He's an outstanding photographer, but uh, Coach Cook uh, came up. My wife hasn't been down here, Ken. Uh, I've been trying to get her to come down here and eat some of this great food and meet some of these fine people. And she hasn't been down here yet. So Coach Cook decided to take his wife up and visit me in Tennessee. And while he was there, my son took his photograph for the cover. It's a great shot, no doubt about that. And uh, it's a terrific book, Galen. Uh, Coach of a Lifetime, the story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach. And uh, you can uh, see Galen on Twitter, at Galen White, G-A-Y-L-O-N, White. And uh, there's a special offer for the book as well on his uh, on his Twitter page that I'm looking at uh, right now. And Galen, always a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, hope to talk to you again real soon. Thanks, Ken. Always appreciate it. All right. Galen White and uh, has authored some uh, terrific books. And this uh, this is number six uh, for him. We will take a break and we will be right back and uh, something completely different. Uh, coming up here on uh, Kale and Company, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. We are powered by Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday morning. We're presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And uh, joining me on this portion of the program is Benjamin Lewin, the founding editor of Cell, the uh, world's leading journal in biology. Has a new book out there, just out as a matter of fact, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology, and Its Impact. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. And uh, uh, first of all, just uh, give us a brief synopsis of the the brand new book. So... The reason for writing the book was that science has become an important driving force in society. But there's a very sort of stylized view of science. You might almost say a caricature. People see it as a sort of black box that it gives results. But they don't understand how those results are obtained or, more importantly, what the limitations of them are. So I thought by explaining how science really works, um, what actually goes on as opposed to the sort of um, mythic view of it, it would help people to understand what is science about when you should trust it, and where you should draw limits. 
Very good. Well, what are some of the things that are going on right now in, in science that you are excited about? Well, one of the moves is the use of AI, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. to analyze results. And that's got great potential because it can synthesize very large amounts of data more effectively than human intuition or analysis. But it's worrying because it undercuts one of the basic principles in science, that you need to publish your results in such a way that allows other people to understand how they were achieved and to repeat them. The issue with an AI program is that even its creators don't always understand fully how it works. You know, it's artificial intelligence. It's not necessarily predictable by us. And so that means there are cases when AI can analyze results, produce a conclusion, but we've got no means of verifying that conclusion. That's a change in the way science works, and it's both, as I said, great potential, but also somewhat worrying. I, I read just a, a couple of days ago that uh, AI is involved in a new formula for Coca-Cola. Do, have you heard about that? <laughs> no, I, no, I hadn't, but you could see how it might adjust. I mean, the advantage of something like AI is you can analyze huge amounts of data very quickly, and you can see patterns that um, may not be obvious to the human eye. But it gets things wrong, so I wouldn't be too confident that this new Coca-Cola is going to taste good. For example, when I was writing the book, I used um, an AI program to identify some of the references I wanted to check. And I told it what I was interested in, and it came back with a list of references, and the authors had published in the right area, the journals had published papers in the right area, the titles of the articles all looked absolutely what I was spot on, what I was looking for. When I went to check them, none of them actually existed. Mm. So AI had sort of predicted what these authors might have or should have worked on, but it hadn't actually checked it against reality. So I'd be just a little bit worried about that Coca-Cola formula. Yeah, they, they say it's the taste of the future. That's how they're billing it, the taste of the future. <laughs> well, it, it may be the future, but do you like it? Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. So what, what's going on that, that uh, has you concerned? Uh, what, what are you concerned about in the world of science? I'm concerned about the transition from what you might call hypothesis-driven science or small-scale science, where small groups of people, sort of less than a dozen really, are investigating some particular problem. They have some sort of theory and they get data to try to support or disprove the theory. And that's how science has always been done traditionally. That's the view of science. But the fact is that it's now making a transition to what you might call big science or big data, where large teams work. They get very large amounts of data. They don't necessarily test a theory, but they just look for correlations in the data. It's a big change. When I went into science, people were always taught a correlation is not proof of cause and effect. And now, um, with big data, you really look for a correlation to see, can we see a pattern here? Uh, will it tell us something? It's just a different way of doing things altogether. And uh, well, my worry is that it turns scientists from thinkers into technicians, and it puts us in a situation in which new discoveries are going to be harder to make. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. seems that uh, scientists are under a lot of pressure these days to, to publish. Uh, has that always been the case, or uh, is, it, uh, is it getting worse? Um, it's getting worse, but it has always been the case. There's always been competition. I mean, you can go back to the 17th century, and there was competition between people uh, to, to, about results. But the phrase publish or perish goes back, I think, to the 1940s. <laughs> and it, it's, um, 
It's a consequence of the fact that you have to apply for a grant, mostly government-funded, to get money to do research, that universities give you tenure based upon how much research you've published, and sometimes it really is quantity, not quality. So there is a lot of pressure, and that has um, several consequences. One is that people tend not to try to do um, way-out experiments. You know, if, if you want to be absolutely sure that you're going to get enough results to publish papers, um, get tenure, get your next grant, you play it safe. So that has a sort of damping effect on curiosity. Play it safe instead of going, going for something really new and exciting. Um, the whole business of funding is a bit of a catch-22 game. In order to get a grant, you need to give some plausible reason why the experiments are going to work. To get that plausible reason, you need to do some experiments, which means you need some, some funds. So there we are in a completely circular argument. Uh, it means that people game the system. When they get a grant to do one thing, they use it for something maybe slightly different, which, mm. will, which will be their next grant, so they've got some plausibility. So it's not a very... It, it's ironic in that science is based upon the whole concept of being truthful and being absolutely reproducible and transparent, but the grant system is based on quite the reverse, which is sort of tricking it in order to get funds. So has, has science uh, become all about funding, pretty much? Getting, them, getting funds to do research has become pretty much about funding, yes. Um, there are, that's not entirely true. It's certainly true of the uh, United States grant system, which is the major source of funding. But there are some um, large-scale charitable organizations which fund scientists. And the principle there is, let's look at your last five years of work. If it's good, we'll fund you for the next five years. I think that's a much better way to fund science, actually. The risk is, of course, that someone goes off the rails and wastes five years. But that, that, that's your limit. They're going to waste five years. That's probably a better system than making people spend, you know, if you are doing research and you're running a lab, you're probably spending something like a third or a half of your time trying to get funds for the next mm. stage. Much better to release those people to go do work. If some of them don't, in fact, do it, well, you, you don't fund them again. How, how could the system be improved? I think focus on people, not projects. Don't ask people, what are you going to do with your money? Uh, don't, and provide an exact account of what you think you're going to find out. For one thing, science is not that predictable. If you knew exactly what you were going to find out, there wouldn't be much point doing it. The whole point of science is to find out something new. Um, so I, w I would say switch the system into funding people on the basis of their past results, not asking them for detailed accounts of what they're going to do. Uh, your book makes clear that fraud, uh, fraud has played a role in, in science throughout the ages, sometimes to the betterment of uh, humanity. Uh, are, you, uh, are, you, are, you, are you advocating for the public uh, uh, for, for pulling, I should say, a fast one in the lab? Certainly not. Um, <laughs> but it is true that there have been cases where people have fudged their data. Um, Isaac Newton fudged his data on gravitation to make the theory work. Hmm. Einstein fudged general relativity a bit. Um, the the, the observations, this was in 1919, observations of an eclipse that um, supported the theory of general relativity. There were, I think, like a dozen observations. 
and three or four of them were used to support the theory, and the others which didn't support it were ignored. So there's always been this fine line in science between saying these results are the real ones, so we're going to rely on them, and those results are outliers, and they're not reliable for some reason, and actually going over the line into fraud and, and, and picking your results to support your theory. That's always been a fine line. Um, it, it, you know, the intuition as to which results are right and which are not is an important thing, but at the same time, um, you should show all your data. I don't advocate fraud at all. I think, obviously not, but I think if you have results and some of them support your theory, some of them don't, you should be transparent. You should say, I have these results. Here are the results that support my theory, and that is why I support the theory. Here are some results I also obtained that don't support it, and this is why I'm dismissing them. If you do that, that's fine. Uh, but I think you do have to explain why you are leaving out some results if you leave them out. Transparency is always best. And uh, yes. and uh, our, our guest is uh, Benjamin Lewin, and his new book, which is just out, is called Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. And uh, we have to take a quick break. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Right, of course. And we will be right back. Kale and Company Live right here on WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company Live on this Thursday, and uh, our guest on this segment of the show is Benjamin Lewis. He is the founding editor of Cell, the world's leading journal in biology. And his new book, which is just out, is called Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. And uh, Benjamin, uh, one of the chapters in your book is called The Myth of the Scientific Paper. Why, why is it a myth? Oh, because all scientific papers follow the same format. They say, here is an existing theory. We have tested it. These are the data we obtained. And this is why we support or we refute the theory. But that's not how science is done at all. Most science is really messy. You're in the lab, you find some observation, you say, hey, that's a bit odd, don't quite understand that. You investigate it, you do more investigations. Science is not, you know, a straight line path of discovery. It's a zigzag. You go up, you go down, you go around. At the end of the day, you've got some results, and you can see that they conform or don't conform with existing theory. And you write the whole thing up as though you had proceeded logically from the beginning, knowing what you found out at the end. It's a complete myth. Um, it's, it's, it's a total misrepresentation of the way science actually works, but it does serve a purpose because when someone else reads the paper, they can fit your results into a logical context, which probably is not the way you did the work um, when you were in the lab. That's why it's a myth. Now, you also explain that uh, patents have always been a part of physics and chemistry, but uh, less so in biology. Why, why is that? And is that a good or a bad thing? Um, it's mixed. So the chemistry, for example, has always had ties with industry. And there have been uh, things coming out of the labs that have then been used to develop technology. Biology was much uh, set off from industry to begin with. And it really wasn't until biotech started in the 1970s and 80s that um, biology began directly to, to, to impact um, industry and there the, the were new companies. Patents are a mixed bag. So the principle of science is transparency, as we were saying before. Um, 
Patents are also, I suppose, to be transparent in the sense that you can reproduce them. But whereas science, you present your results and anybody else is free to reproduce them, challenge them, build on them, whatever, um, a patent really gives you a monopoly on something. You can license it, you cannot license it. That's sort of really opposed to the principle of science, which is everything is, is, is free. So um, patents are good in the sense that um, there are all sorts of projects which would not be undertaken unless you could get protection from a patent, but they have a distorting effect on science in the sense that you shouldn't really decide when you set out a research project whether the fact that you can or cannot patent it will be pertinent. So I think on balance, it's not been terribly good for biology. There was um, a big controversy as to whether it would be possible to to patent the sequence of a gene, for example, um, at the start of, of the whole biotech revolution. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it was actually, I thought, quite clear from the Supreme Court uh, ruling that they did not really understand science at all. And that sort of brings me to another concern, which is there are so few people in the political or legal class who understand science yeah. that given how driven by science society is, that is a dangerous situation. People, I don't expect people to understand the details of science, to be specialists in each field, but it would be nice if they understood the principles by which science works so that they could do a better job on handling its impact on society. Which leads me to another question, and that is, where do we stand with stem cells? Uh, you know, uh, seems that uh, stem cell uh, is, is, a, is a political football of sorts. Yes, it is, and even back in the Obama administration, NIH was banned from using government funds to support work on stem cells. That's really terrible. There's no other way to put it. Um, the United States has certainly fallen behind in stem cell research. It's got a terrific potential, st stem cell research, for things like um, rebuilding organs that are damaged. You know, you take a person's own stem cells, perhaps, somewhere in the future, and rebuild one of their organs. All of that research in the United States has been impeded by political pressure. I think, I understand that society is basically funding science and therefore cannot be expected to give it a completely free hand. But for many, many years, we had a principle that research would be supported if it was intellectually interesting. Once you start saying there are political limits, that's a really bad thing, and it's the start of a, a slippery slope. Um, there's no other way to put it. Yeah, and uh, now, t where, where do we stand right now with, with stem cell uh, science, research? I, I know that, you know, people have had to go to uh, different countries to have yeah. stem cell you surgery. You, you can't use U.S. government funds to do stem cell research. Mm. Uh, private organizations, charitable organizations, whatever, can support it if they want to. People have gone to foreign countries to do such research. The whole... Um, Field, for example, of IVF, in vitro fertilization, was developed in Europe because it was impossible to do it in the United States. Not a very good thing if we export our talent from the United States elsewhere because of political limitations. You know, I, I read a, a book once about a legendary hockey player, uh, Gordy Howe, who was uh, near death at one time and uh, had to be kind of uh, snuck into, into Mexico uh, to have stem cell surgery done. And uh, and he lived for another five years after that. And he was like on, on, on death's door. Uh, they snuck him into Mexico and 
he was uh, it was good as new for another five years. Well, I don't know about that particular case, but it's certainly true that it's not a good thing for us to impede medical research in the way that we have done. Yeah. What are some of the other uh, controversial areas uh, of uh, research in, in biology? Well, there's an area called epigenetics, which is very controversial. So conventional wisdom is that um, heredity is determined by DNA, which has basically four component units. Epigenetics stems from the discovery that one of those four component units can be modified, and that changes the properties of a gene. Um, that, that in itself is, is, is just part of the way the organism works, the way genes work, the way cells work. But there, is, there have been proposals that such modifications can be influenced by the environment and that they can be inherited by the next generation. If that were true, it would be a huge change in evolutionary argument. I don't think it's true. I don't think there's any evidence for it. But I would say that was one of the most controversial areas in biology at the moment. Mm. So how did you wind up being a, a, a science critic, as it were, uh, instead of a, a researcher? Oh, well, I started out intending to do research in biochemistry. And then one day I was ex- performing an experiment, and I noticed that everybody left the lab. I went off to find out where they were during a break. They were in a room at the end of the building. And it turned out, they told me, that the procedure I was following could generate the explosive TNT as a side reaction. So they thought it was safest to go somewhere else. That sort of gave me some pause for thought, you know, about doing research. And anyway, I decided that spending all day, all night doing experiments sort of lost the point of science. For me, that's to understand things. So I moved into, uh, I became an editor at, at Nature. And then, um, because I was exasperated with the way things worked and the way science got published, I started a journal cell to do things in a different way. And I became, I suppose, an editor and a sort of critic of science. And I found that very interesting because it was very intellectually stimulating. For me, more stimulating than trying to know everything about one tiny problem. Right. Well, I, I tell you what, uh, you have certainly brought the uh, the world of science uh, uh, to light and have done uh, some, some great work uh, over the years. And uh, your new book is called uh, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact uh, Just Out. And I imagine it's available uh, on uh, Amazon and all the other places you get uh, books these days. Yes, it's certainly on Amazon Worldwide. And I hope in bookshops as well, though I haven't actually gone to check yet. <laughs> okay, it, it just came out a few days ago, correct? Just two, just two days ago. Two yeah. days ago. Well, uh, Benjamin Lewin, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, great insights, and uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. All right. And uh, the book, again, is called Inside Science. And uh, check it out. There's a lot. Of, it's made simple, so uh, people like me. Uh, I can understand it. And uh, the author is Benjamin Lewin, L-E-W-I-N. Thanks to Benjamin for being with us today. Thanks to uh, Galen White for talking a little bit about high school football coaching legend Lewis Cook Jr. We've had uh, two uh, diverse half hours this morning on uh, Kale and Company Live, and we're glad you could share them here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. If you missed any of it or just want to hear it again, you can tune in tonight after 7 o'clock and 
Next week, we're going to have another Local Musicians Week here on WKXL. And it's going to be a, a terrific week. And I want you to tune in. And we have some of the uh, outstanding local performers. And, and we have uh, a number of them uh, in this area. So you'll want to find out a little bit more about the uh, local music scene next week here on WKXL and htalkradio.com. Just one more reminder, there's uh, high school football tonight in Concord. Tonight, yes, Thursday night football at Memorial Field as the Crimson Tide take on Salem. Thanks for listening. Make it a great Thursday, everyone, and always look on the bright side of life.